Hello and welcome to Masters of Divinity. I am your moderator, JP, and I am here with Father Chuck, and he is wearing an avatar hoodie. Or yes. maybe he is in his avatar, and that's who I'm talking to. And <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't really know. This is really, this is I really don't, convincing hoodie. I don't, I don't, I don't know enough Navi to come up with like a Navi name for myself. <laughs> Is there? There's not like a Navi name generator out there. I'm sure you could use. Uh, I bet there is one actually. <laughs> I have to look it up. I, I have to say something before we really get into things, John Post. Okay. What do you want to say? Uh, I was listening to the to the most recent episode. Yeah. And I almost made a comment actually on the Facebook, and I might still do that, but I didn't want I didn't want Amanda to think that I was like calling her out. Okay. Um, but she made a comment about how like oh everybody showed up for Rob Bell. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. and I want and I want Amanda to understand that I had every intention of being in this uh, being on that episode. But I was currently I was at the time laying prone on my back because I had blown out my lower back. Mm-hmm. And it turned out I found out the next day that I have had pneumonia for a while. Oh so God. I had a blown out back and I had pneumonia. So Amanda, that's why I wasn't on the podcast. It had nothing to do with you. It had nothing to do with me thinking that I had something better to do. Because I promise you, I promise you, I would rather have been on the podcast talking about your really great crime thriller movie than uh, than laying prone on my back, um, wallowing in my own pain and, <laughs> and respiratory ailment. Well, we missed you, Chuck. And, and uh, she was sad that she couldn't get the, the full Masters of Divinity effect. Um, well, there's there's only one solution to that. And what's that? We have her back on. Oh, that's a great idea. I think we should. Um, I would like to find out her thoughts on Avatar. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, I know I'm a ridiculous person. <laughs> and maybe she uh, likes Tron Legacy. I don't know. You know, they're supposed to be building a Tron Legacy roller coaster at Disney. By the way, I, I've heard I've I've heard whisperings of this. Yeah, because they have they have one in Shanghai Disney apparently. I've, and, I've seen the YouTube video. And they apparently have, like, extra parts, like, enough to, like, I guess, build a second one just sitting in storage. And so they're talking about building it over by Space Mountain. Oh, great. I, so, 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 so Disney's going to build the ride using old, used China parts. Thanks. That's great. It's great. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be called Torn. Narat. What's Narat? But yeah, I mean, I I could live out a fantasy of of in, interacting with two famously terrible franchises um, <laughs> that are very, very, very beloved to me. You so know, you know, it's it's so funny. You, you know, I, when 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 Tron Legacy came out, I, I I was really I really didn't like it. When Avatar came out, I was like, eh, whatever. And it's so weird how like art. And you know this really has nothing to do with our topic, but I but I want to bring it up anyway because it's fun to talk about. It's so weird how things change over time. I just watched this video on YouTube, a video essay, because that's my new thing that I'm obsessed with is video essays. Basically, just tearing apart why Marvel is a problem. It's all because of Marvel's intertextuality and how it's inspiring other franchises and other movies to do the same thing. You know what I mean by intertextuality? You mean like where they have kind of a they, they they kind of all look the same? Of course, they share like a continuity. They share a continuity, but they it's sort of the, the self referencing factor, right? Uh, right. Like Spider Man Homecoming picks up after the Avengers, and Michael Keaton is cleaning up after the the Battle of Man- Manhattan. Right. Right. That's what I mean by intertextuality. Like the audience knows that they don't have to explain it. 
Um, right. And it's affecting other franchises and movies. Uh, Star Wars, of course. I mean, it, it, Star Wars is doing the same thing, but it's it kind of works because it's still sort of sort of a shared universe, I guess. Uh, but like James Bond, and and the movie Spectre, when he first meets yeah. Blo- when he first meets Blowfield, when he says Blowfield, we're all supposed to be like, oh, Blowfield. But like in this in this continuity, he's never been introduced, so like he, he it really means nothing narratively. Right. It, it's it's kind of like it's kind of like the con reveal in Star Trek Into Darkness. Precisely. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. So and they said that's sort of a problem created by Marvel and, and and it's and it's sort of taking the place of dramatic writing and blah 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 blah. And you know what? I'm not gonna say this guy's wrong. And I'm not gonna say that criticism is wrong. I think they're right. However, there's gonna be a time where no one's gonna care. <laughs> and they're gonna look back on it and they're gonna say, like, these movies are great because of this. And yeah, there was this intertextuality problem, and yeah, that's fine. But what about this? And you know, I, I realized that because I, I watched I'm trying to do the same. I'm watching a lot of horror movies for October, for Halloween. Right. And uh, the other day, I watched a bunch of movies from this guy named Val Luton, who was a producer back in the 1940s. He was supposed to make a bunch of monster movies. <laughs> he was hired by RKO to do their horror division because they wanted to compete against Universal and their monster movies. And so, uh, uh, studio head, I think it was Selznick, hired Val Luton and said, hey, make me these monster movies. I'm giving you $150,000 like per movie to make it. And we're going to like, we're going to do better than them. And he gave them, he gave out Luton titles, no plots, no characters, no actors. He gave him titles. And so Val Luton was like, okay, uh, cat people. It's actually like a psychological thriller about like a woman who might, who may or may not be a cat throughout the entire movie or, or sorry, a killer Panther or something throughout the entire movie. And these movies are like B movies, you know, and there, right. it comes to a point in the narrative where like the studio started to catch on what Val was doing. It's like, no, you're not making actual, you're, you're giving these, the monster titles, but like they're psychological thrillers. You can't do that. And so they interfere with a, a movie called Isle of the Dead. Val Luton tried to make a psychological thriller. The studio tried to cram in like supernatural elements and make a more B movie. And it's like, and, and Val Luton's like, this movie's a mess. It's terrible. It's horrible. The reviews of time, terrible, horrible. I watched... A documentary the other day where Martin Scorsese is talking about this movie and he's talking about how brilliant it was. So that's yeah. that's interesting to me. Well, and, and you I, know, I feel like we can't really see the forest and the trees anymore when it comes to cinema, and we should be considering if you love cinema, you should be looking at the history of cinema and, and like how cycles uh, the cycles are and how things repeat themselves and things don't really well, change that much. Well, this kind of touches on something that we almost talked about tonight. Maybe we'll talk about it next week, yeah. which is in terms of film criticism, because I shared with you an article from Crack.com, great source of, 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 of time wasting. And they they just today was an article about um, about time that like or maybe it was yesterday. Anyway, whenever it was when film critics just sort of like went nuts and yeah. um, and, you know, like anyway, the, the whole the, the thing being that certain modern biases and like then contemporary attitudes on whatever mm-hmm. led people to write off movies because it didn't fit into like an orthodoxy or whatever. Like one of the things it points out is Rosie O'Donnell hating fight club and spoiling the and spoiling the twist of fight club right. largely because it came out shortly after Columbine okay. and the feeling was that a movie like this shouldn't exist <laughs> In, in, in this contemporary time. And like that has nothing to do with the movie that David Fincher made. Yeah. Nothing at all. 
Um, and that's the kind of stuff that, that, that blows my mind. And like one that I, I know we've touched on a little bit and I've told you is like, I love the show, the Orville. Yeah. I love that show. I know I finally got you to watch that show. Yeah. It was really good. And the number of people who are uh, critics, like actual critics, not just like, Oh, somebody who has an IMDB account or, or, or whatever, like actual published critics are hating on the show for a couple of reasons. One, mostly because a lot of them just hate Seth MacFarlane for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, other people are hating on it because it's not a comedy. It's not funny. Well, okay, so Fox advertised it as being funny, but I think you watch the pilot and it's pretty clear to walk away that it's not meant to be like a family guy, Ted kind of comedy. It's yeah. meant to be, you know, Star Trek with a couple of softball jokes thrown in it. Um, that's what kind of ties into my criticism towards people who are like, because the movie doesn't meet certain expectations. It's like, Oh, I can't watch. It. I don't like it. Like it's, right. it's a bad movie. Like, okay. Right. Here's why the expectations, maybe try not having expectations anymore. I don't know. Yeah. Get Which, and I mindset. think, right. And I think this, this piece right here, JP kind of borders on what we're actually going to talk about. tonight. <laughs> okay. Because, be, because like fans have expectations. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah of what they want their movies to be. And, and that's, and that, and that's an interesting thing. Yeah. Well, what we're <laughs> going to talk about on this episode, uh, audience, dearly beloved audience is fan ownership. Now, I, you know, what's funny. I tried to kind of do just a little bit of preliminary, uh, research on fan ownership and I kept Googling fan ownership. The only thing I kept coming across was like how fans can own a piece of like soccer clubs. So, <laughs> that's not the fan ownership we're talking about. We're not, we're not talking about investing in, 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 in uh, you know, football, uh, right? right. <laughs> European football. Uh, we're talking about, uh, let me, let me just ask you, Chuck, we'll, we'll get things rolling this way. Um, when I say, when, when someone says fan ownership, when they're talking about fan ownership, what do you think fan ownership is? What I think of fan ownership is I think of the degree to which, fans own the thing they're fans of mm -hmm. in the sense of like, I'll use star Wars as an example, because I think it's a good example. And I had, and, and I have feelings and thoughts on the matter is a, a, a classic a classic instance of this is the prequels. Right. Okay. Every so many people dislike the prequels, particularly star Wars fans of a certain generation, namely our generation. And there, and there's two re and there's two reasons for that. And, and one of them is, judging them solely on their quite terrible cinematic, <laughs> um, qualities. Um, but there are people who hate, who hate them for things like midichlorians choosing to show Anakin as a little boy to start everything off, um, changing the story to be more about Darth Vader than Luke, Jar Jar, uh, Jar Jar, stuff like that. And like, I get it. I, I understand why you might not like that stuff. I don't like that stuff, but it crossed a it's crossed a place where it becomes that the fans sort of have this attitude that we are actually the proper the the ones who really truly understand Star Wars that George Lucas the guy who created Star Wars doesn't actually understand his own fictional property properly yeah and so we reject George Lucas and we talk about him ruining the thing that we love and I mean here the thing is is that he made three fairly bad movies with the star Wars name on it. Right. 
And I've come a long way in my feeling on this because I used to feel the very, very opposite about this. I used to have very strong feelings in feeling that as a fan, I own Star Wars and that George Lucas owes me something. But now I'm like, George Lucas told the story that he wanted to tell. Mm-hmm. He was a, he was an artist and that's the story he wanted to tell. He, he, he Could he have told that story better? I think so. But it was his story to tell and he did what he wanted to do. And the idea that as a fan... I have to get angry about that yeah. is an interesting piece. And I, I don't want to get too far, but that to me is about is, is my way of talking about fan ownership is that because I really like the original Star Wars trilogy, I feel that I somehow own those characters, those stories and the extended universe and all of that stuff. And therefore, the creators of those properties owe me something and they need to take my feelings into consideration when they make something new. Yeah, and it's that's and it's one thing when you talk about the prequels, you know, you can make that you can make a solid argument by saying like you know George Lucas doesn't really owe you anything, you know he's he's a filmmaker he has the power to do whatever he wants he finally, you know we 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 all we've all taken the journey with George Lucas we know his story we know that he's always wanted to just do his own thing and he finally yeah. gets to and that and there's something heroic in that however the unfortunate part is that. Well, it might have not been that good. <laughs> uh, there might have been some shortcomings and things like acting or uh, maybe just some narrative problems. But, right. But I mean, for but for the most part, he at least got to do his own thing, which is something that that all artists want. And we all champion that. Yeah. But there's another sort of side to that argument in, in terms of Star Wars and George Lucas. And it's when you start touching on the original trilogy and the special editions. Right. Okay. Okay. That's actually, I should have gone further than that. You're right. You're right. I forgot about the special editions. Yeah. So, and, and it's interesting that you bring a star Wars check because I, I, I didn't want to say anything until we started recording, but part of me wondered if you brought up star Wars because Southwark did an episode about it, about like, about the star Wars special editions. Oh yeah. 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 Like way back when. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they, they, they there was the one where they wanted to do, the Rays of the Lost Ark special edition. Right. Everyone had walkie-talkies for guns. <laughs> yeah. And the the mess there was a message in that episode. I don't know if I don't know how long it's been since you've seen the episode, but it does end with the kids giving a, a speech on how like you don't own this anymore, we own it. Right. So do you think it's different when you when referring to something like Star Wars special editions where George Lucas kind of went back and changed things or do you think it kind of still applies? To like the prequel, how are we going to make it for the prequels? I think the issue the issue the issue with the special editions is unique in that he basically wrote over the masters right. with the special edition, and he erased what came before. Yeah, and and there is and and I and I will say that as so, you know, someone who grew up with those movies, like that's that's kind of it 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 hurts in a way because. I can't necessarily see it's it's very difficult for me to see those movies mm-hmm. the way that my mom saw them in the theater. Right. You know? The special edition, honestly, the content, I've never had that big of a problem with the content of the special editions. And people make other than the whole um Han Greedo shooting nonsense. <laughs> yeah. Um <laughs> because that's a fundamental change of a character, but that's a whole other thing. Yeah. That are already presented character. Yeah, I mean, and that's 
I don't know. I know we, it's funny. We had also talked about the possibility of doing a revisionist history episode. And I feel like this could go into revisionist history too. Totally. Yeah. I mean, so star Wars is kind of a complicated one, Mm -hmm. but like, let's say, let's, let's, okay. Star Trek. Okay. How about star Trek? Okay. The way that star Trek fans sort of, I mean, cause if you want to talk about a, you want to talk about a, a fandom that is borderline, that's almost a borderline religion. Mm-hmm. You're talking about Star Trek. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. And the idea that, I mean, every new iteration is basically like a new scripture being written. <laughs> um, and so um, and so people, you know, getting upset at the J.J. Abrams movies for not being like Star Trek-y enough or people getting upset at Star Trek Discovery because it focuses more on action and sci-fi and, and all that kind of stuff. Um I don't know. Maybe we just cut that because I don't really know where I'm going with it because I haven't seen Star Trek Discovery well, because they made this st- stupid decision to put it on CBS All Access. <laughs> well, there, there, there is something to be said because I kind of feel like the way people treat Gene Roddenberry um, is kind of the same way fans treat George Lucas. Because I know I, – I mean I, I'm, not, I'm not as into Star Trek as like you and Father Fun and Matt. I don't know as much as you guys know. But from, what, from my own research and reading and stuff, he was pretty much – butted out of Star Trek, right? Once they got into the new, into the next generation. Right. So, I mean, I mean, how does that tie? I mean, I mean, it, it's obviously not fan ownership because you're working with professionals like writers and directors and stuff and other artists. Um, but does it, would you say that that creation was sort of taken away from him, even though artists should be kind of allowed to do their own thing? Maybe he was a detriment to his own art or, I mean, how does that differ from? Yeah. I mean, I think, it's a little bit. I think a TV show is a little bit different than a movie, yeah. because it's hard to be like an like an auteur in a television show because you have staff of writers, you have staff producers, you have a bunch of people working on things, mm-hmm. um, and and I think and I think it's one of those things where like Roddenberry was so so idealistic. I mean, you know, people still really look to his sort of the kernel of his ideas for Star Trek and try to hold on to that. You know, the idea of optimism that we are going to, you know, be better as a species and all this kind of stuff. Um, but the problem is, is like Star Trek: The Next Generation. Like the first few seasons of it are very tough to watch because he had a moratorium on interpersonal conflict because he felt that humans would evolve past interpersonal conflict. Right. Yeah. And so I feel like that's one of those things where it's like that's a cool idea. It does not translate to good television, though. Yeah. And so I think that's a big part of why he was kind of butted out. Plus, he had a very bizarre obsession with um, with um, um, extraterrestrial sex habits, and he kept wanting to do stuff. <laughs> Who with is that. it? Am I right? <laughs> yeah, but um, but yeah, but I think, but but like I said, I think because Gene Roddenberry more or less spearheaded the thing, I don't think he has he has as much direct. He 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 should have had as much direct oversight of it. Mm-hmm. You know, now, you know creating a series Bible and kind of keeping to that. Like, I understand that. Yeah. Um, and, and based off what I can see from Star Trek discovery, uh, you know, I understand the fans complaints of things like the technology looking way more advanced than the sixties show. Right. Because like, cause on one hand I, I get why you don't want it to look like that because it's kind of hokey by today's standards. But if you're making a show for Star Trek fans that's calling back to a particular time and place, you should kind of be giving a shout out to (laughs) the stuff that people love about it in the first place. You know, I feel like that puts you in an interesting creative box and to sort of throw that out the window, um, is, is a bit of a, uh, is a bit of a problem when you're dealing with something as, 
when you're dealing with something as like as dearly beloved as Star Trek that has that's I mean of any of almost, I mean you talk about Marvel having intertextuality and stuff Star Trek has that like oh, yeah. in spades and so when when people ignore that that's when things become problem become a problem um but what the funny thing about Star Trek though is that in time fans end up like, like they almost always hate every new iteration of Star Trek but then they mostly come to embrace it in the long run uh, except for Voyager most people still hate Voyager but like Enterprise people hated Enterprise now it's really being well being reassessed by the fans and it's sort of this attitude it's like well whatever new thing is at least it's not as bad or, or, or you know like or at least this at least Enterprise wasn't as bad as Discovery <laughs> or at least you know at least Voyager wasn't as bad as Enterprise or at least Deep Space Nine wasn't as bad it's you know so it kind of always takes that pattern yeah but um, well, but which go, go ahead. Fan ownership in Star Trek is, is, is interesting to me because I feel like there's, um, I feel like as the, as there's been shows, uh, fandom has sort of evolved. And I think one of the most fascinating things about Star Trek to me was it, during the run of the next generation, they had like an open door policy for fans to write scripts and stuff. Right. And uh, they would go through them, and some of them were made, and I think at least a few of them were actually considered are considered to be like some of the best episodes ever made, right? Yeah, um, there's specters. Uh, um, um, uh, Father Fun, if he were on here, would be able to tell you probably you know more episodes. I feel like what's I the one? Like the one the that Inner Quinn... Light. I feel like the Inner Light is a fan episode. Is it? And it's considered like the best episode, one of the best episodes of Star Trek: The Next Generation. Well, the one but... I'm thinking of, I saw last year because Quentin Tarantino talked about it. Is um... Um, the this this is it this year's Enterprise. Oh, yesterday's Enterprise. Yesterday's Enterprise. Yeah, you know what? The one where the Enterprise C comes through the wormhole. Yeah, and uh, yeah, what's her face comes back. Tasha Yar. Yeah, Tasha Yar. Yeah, yeah. That's just uh, that, I watched that actually. I actually really liked. I thought it was really well written. Yeah, that's a cool episode. So like, and and to me, you know, so that's why like to me, Star Trek fan ownership is is has interesting history because it's not it's not like Star Wars. Where it's right. just like we love, we love, we love, and now we hate it, hate it, hate it. Star Trek actually like let their fans interact with the show, right? And it, they really, they, I mean, I don't know if you could say in the long run if it benefited them or was against them, but but I mean, we got some pretty good episodes out of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, Star Trek. Yeah, like you said, Star Trek has a very interesting dynamic with it because it has done a, a fairly decent job because it has, I mean, it has so much fan fiction, not, you know, novelizations, yeah, yeah, continuation yeah. novels, uh, alternate universe novels. I mean, it's got so many things out there that basically like whatever you want Star Trek to be, you can get it mm-hmm. if you look for it. Um, and that's cool. That's a great thing about it. Um, I don't, I can't think of too many science fiction properties that are quite like that other than maybe, maybe Star Wars, particularly the extended universe when we were growing up. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, so you get a lot of speculative stuff with it, you know, that the, the the canonical things are like what's committed to celluloid, right? Mm-hmm. But but getting back to the kernel of the idea, I, I feel like this question is sort of the it's sort of the shadow side of death of the author. Oh yeah, because you know when we talk about does the author own the story? Well, we would say no, right? The author doesn't own the story, uh, so then does that mean the fans own the story? I don't know. I mean, I, I it just just depends. I mean, a de- death of the nof- a death of the author is sort of like its own, you know, its own theory, and it just kind of depends on what you want to adopt. You know, death of the author kind of goes up again, and at least in filmmaking, death of the author is like a contradiction of the auteur theory, uh, which is that there is an author in film, right? 
and it's direct, right. it's the director. And then like, whatever he says is like, you know, is pretty much God. <laughs> right. Um, so I don't, I mean, I don't know. I mean, are you asking if I believe in death and the author or if like, if, if death and the author, death of the author, author exists, does that mean the fans have ownership? I mean, yeah, I guess if the, if the author, if the author, if, if the author is dead, if the author basically has no ownership in their own story. That's interesting, Chuck. That's interesting because I think who from, does? From, from an analytical point, from like a criticism point, um, the, the fans own it because they can interpret whatever. But as far as the create the creation part, I don't think death of the author applies to that. Okay. By the way, I'm aware that we might need to define death of the author for a few hours. <laughs> I can't, I don't, I will, I'll do it. Cause yeah, cause it's something I talked, we talked about when I was an English student. Yeah. So death of the author is the idea that, um, that like, as so I'll, I'll just put it this way. I write a story. So I author a story. I write a short story or a novel or whatever, and you read it. And so when you have some questions about, why a character does this, that, or the other, or you point out something that seems like an inconsistency or whatever, um, in your own critical analysis of that book, my interpretation of the story carries no, no more weight than you, the reader, because the idea is that a story that once a story leaves the mind of an author, it becomes its own thing. Mm -hmm. And so, my interpretation as the author is just as is more or less just as valid as someone else's. Um, you know, you have to you have to weigh it against um, internal consistency and different things like that. Um, so the idea is that is like what well, you're saying, JP is right. That critically, you know, um, George Lucas, I guess necessarily in, in death of the author theory, just George Lucas would step in and say that. You know, he can't step in and say, well, no, no, this is what it really means. You well, know, like but... a, a good example would be like Quentin Tarantino's and Pulp Fiction. What's in the briefcase? Yeah. And he purposely doesn't answer it because he kind of he kind of likes playing a little bit with Death the Author. He wanted people to speculate what's in the briefcase. And he felt that if he if he came up with his own theory of what's in the briefcase and explains it, um, then like people won't get to speculate. It kind of takes right. away from it. Uh, because you know the the author is the the authoritative voice, and he's like, I didn't for that for that aspect of the movie at least. He didn't want anything authoritative. If you haven't seen yeah. Pulp Fiction, folks, there's a, there's a there's a there's a briefcase in the movie, and John Travolta opens it. You see a light reflect on him. You never see what's actually in the briefcase, and yet everyone's after this briefcase. Yeah, it's 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 also kind of like the 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 very last scene of of Lost in Translation, where where um, Bill Murray whispers something to Scarlett Johansson, um, their two characters, and you can't hear it. Yeah. And there's this whole like thing about what is, well, it's, in, it's meant to be intentionally vague. Like, and like, yeah, you can apparently use really sensitive sound stuff and turn it up and actually find out what he does say to her. But yeah, that it, my friend Seth, when I told him, I said, Oh, somebody found out what it is. Cause we both really love that movie. He was like, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. He's like, because that to me is what makes the movie the movie. Right. Is that vague, open-ended aspect of things. Um, or like the end of Mad Men. That's another great one. It's like meant to be vague. I haven't, I haven't seen it. <laughs> oh, okay. I won't, war, I won't ruin that for you because it's one of the greatest shows I've ever I know. made. I need, to get, I need to get back into it. It's been a while. Um, but, you know, Death of the Author can be fun. Um, yeah. As, as far as it being authoritative, I, I don't know. There's a whole documentary called Room 230, 231, I think. It's a documentary about um, people and their theories for The Shining. 
Oh, right. And it's actually like really fascinating uh, the things people like come up with. And one of them, my favorite one, I think everyone's favorite one is is basically the shining was just Stanley Kubrick trying to tell us all that he helped fake the moon landing. <laughs> <laughs> and this guy just goes really in depth. And he's like, there's all these clues all throughout the, all throughout the movie where Stanley Kubrick is, is confessing that the moon landing was fake and he helped film it. And in like, <laughs> in like the stage where he shot the shining, that's where they filmed the moon landing. Oh my gosh. Uh, you know, that's yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of like how the Beatles intentionally put like, veiled stuff in their music <laughs> and then it turned out that one of their fans took a lot of ownership to some of their lyrics and oh yeah, used yeah. It to, to justify murdering a bunch of celebrities in the hollywood hills i'm talking oh, about charles gosh. manson and so that's one of the reasons why they think that the beatles have never really owned up to the fact that they did hide stuff in their music because are they culpable for yeah. manson murders or whatever but that's yeah, all yeah. in the conversation yeah well and you know this is sort of this is a, this is to me to me this is a healthy interaction between fandom and 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 the artists. Yeah, it's know? playful. It's 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 analytical, it's critical and it's like I think if you can kind of interpret something from a story that that an artist didn't really notice but then they're like, "Oh, well that's interesting. You came up with that." That that's that's happened before. I've seen that happen like as I've facilitated Q&As and film festivals and stuff where like I didn't mean that to happen, but I'm gonna like tell everybody that now. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I'm trying to <clears throat> I'm trying to think of what there's a couple of them recently, but I think a great example of that is if you listen to the commentary track on Fight Club between Chuck Palahniuk, the author of the novel Fight Club, and David Fincher, um, who obviously interpreted the novel for for cinema, and listening to Chuck Palahniuk tell David Fincher, like, man, I really like the way you did this, and I really like the way that you caught this essence of this character and brought this thing out and you know, that Chuck Palina can actually own the fact that, you know, David Fincher interpreted his work in a way that he, you know, didn't necessarily intend, but there it was, you yeah. know, rather you ruined my story. Yeah, I actually have. Can we take a quick tangent for a second? Sure. Because I have my own little critical theory. I watched uh, a documentary a few days ago called Spielberg, and it's it, it's the HBO's documentary about about Steven Spielberg. And it's actually it's really wonderful. If you have HBO, go check it out. Um he talked about uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And, you know, that's always been kind of a, an odd one out for Spielberg because of what happens at the end of that movie. Roy leaves his family and goes to the aliens. Right. And Spielberg has always said, like, I would have never done that. And, and you know, Spielberg always kind of takes the role of, his fa- of, of, uh, of the father in most of his movies, with the exception of, like, E.T., because he's right. very definitely Elliot. <laughs> um, but what I, what I thought was interesting is he was talking about his relationship with his own father and how um, when his parents got divorced, it was so traumatic. And he was talking about a time when he was sitting around, uh, he was sitting at a dinner table and his mom had sort of confessed this horrible thing about how she had basically cheated on him and that they were going to get a divorce. And his father started crying. And it affected Steven Spielberg so much as a ch- when he was a child that he started he started yelling at his father, started calling him a crybaby. He's like, "You're not a real man. You're a crybaby." Well, if you watch Close Encounters of the Third Kind, he re- he reenacts that moment when um, Roy's in the bathtub and he's kind of going crazy because he's so obsessed with uh, seeing UFOs and Devil's Tower and all that stuff. And he's sitting in the bathtub, and his wife is yelling at him, and. Um, his son comes in and starts calling him a crybaby. He's like, he put that in there because to sort of reference that. I think what's interesting is that the reason why it's so odd man out, Close Encounters, is because 
Roy isn't Steven Spielberg. It's Steven Spielberg's father. Right. Interesting. Because if you remember, the movie, you know, Roy is like really, he becomes obsessed with UFOs. Right. He becomes right. so distracted. He neglects his family. He kind of, in a way, runs off with another woman, sort of kind of, kind of starts a different family. Right. Um, and his, his poor family is neglected. I mean, that's sort of what happened to Steven Spielberg's family. You know, his father, his, his, his mom cheated on his dad because his dad was so preoccupied with work. He was a computer programmer. He was just working all around the clock, obsessed with his work. And uh, he, they never mentioned in a documentary that that could be the angle that he's taken. And I feel like that, that's definitely something you can interpret. Yeah, interesting. So, anyway, not to get off on tangents. <laughs> we like tangents on the Masters of Divinity. We do. Um, so this kind of, I want to kind of uh, switch to a sort of like a subcategory in fan ownership, some, a, a okay. phenomenon, if you will, that's sort of risen, I don't know when it really cemented itself into the idea of fandom, but shipping. Oh my gosh. Um, it's hard to, Does, exp- it's hard to explain. Well, the first ships, the first ships go to, um, go to the original series of Star Trek. It always goes back to Star Trek. Mary it's Sue true. shipping. It's true. <laughs> it's true. The very first ships in in fandom were um, underground fan fiction publications um, putting Spock and Kirk together as lovers. And w- what is shipping? It's basically you just you want two people to be together, right? Two two. Characters. You put them in a relationship. Yeah. So you're shipping. So I it's hate like... it, by the way. I really dislike <laughs> it. When I was a, when I was when I was watching Buffy, I was a a a. a determined bangel fan oh my gosh in, in the whole like in the whole like like portman do nonsense with the names i oh i was not a spuffy fan i, I think i would definitely think i'm more spuffy now than bangel <laughs> for those who have no idea what john post is talking about he's talking about buffy and angel who were a couple at one time in the show and then spike and buffy who are also a couple in the show <laughs> later on so they call them spuffy and bangel but it's but it's so weird it's so weird like what does what what does my what do i have to do with this like what do i have to do with a relationship yeah. in a movie like i ship I, I ship spuffy what does that mean like i say that but I, when i say that i feel like it means i liked it more when Angel and Buffy were a thing, and if right. she's a thing with anybody else, I dislike it. But who right. cares? Like, yeah, what? proper, proper. As I understand, like the more, like the more, I guess now conventional understanding of shipping would be like Buffy and Cordelia, oh. like characters who were never together in the show, but the fans would love to see that happen. It's sort of like a, it's it's a fantasy kind of thing. Yeah, that makes or, or and, it, and it gets and kind Angel. of porno. It gets kind of porny. Yeah, Spike, it's always been kind of porny. <laughs> Spike and Angel. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, I, I could see that. What do you think about shipping, Chuck? Well, as I said, I hate the term. Um, it, 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 it's, a, it's a phenomenon that doesn't make any sense to me. I've never – I don't know. Maybe I'm just too like – the way that I interact with – that I've interacted with the stuff that I'm fans of, that I'm – that I, I just sort of take it as it is. Like there are rules to it. Um you know, like I was the kind of kid that when I if I played Jurassic Park with other kids, like I played Jurassic Park toys with other kids in my mind, they if they didn't reenact the movie, they played with it wrong. <laughs> um, I don't know. I was weird, but you would have not liked me and my Jurassic Park toys were interacting with my aliens toys. And 
See, yeah, yeah, oh, 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 yeah. The Colonial Marines landed on Jurassic Park, and oh, you see, oh, no, no, I cannot mix franchises, bro. I can't do it. I, oh, that, 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 oh, I'm serious. Like, I'm having a visceral, like, having an actual, like, physical reaction to you talking about this because, like, yes, a lot of the Jurassic Park toys use the same like figure molds <laughs> yeah. as the alien action figures. So the idea that you could, like, I would use, say, like the Robert Muldoon action figure on like the Nostromo and he's just sort of like some random dude who's like fighting aliens, but he's not Robert Muldoon from Jurassic park. To me, that does not compute. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I've, I, I, I've never been a fan of, of that kind of stuff. Sometimes I am, I shouldn't say I entirely like sometimes I am, but, um, for the most part. Yeah. I just, I couldn't do it anyway. I'm weird. I'm weird. <laughs> I, maybe I have a limited imagination, but, um, but no, it just, but it's a thing that just has never made sense to me. Like I've never, and it's, it's something I've only relatively recently learned about. I didn't know about shipping as a concept until, um, I was a youth minister, um, in my first couple of years as a priest, um, the girls in our youth group would talk about characters they ship in their, in their various, um, animation interests. It was such a bizarre phenomenon to me because it's just something I would never have watched a show and just been like, like I didn't watch super friends and think like. I really wish, I really wish Wonder Woman and and Hawkman would get together. I yeah. think that would be cool. I guess like, it's more it's more it's more speculative now, right? Like it's yeah because, because in my mind the, that's big just one, not what they do. Yeah, big one right now is is Captain America and Bucky. Right, and that's and that's actually one I could talk a lot about because friggin' Marvel fans hounded the creators of the the writers of those characters uh, in the movies and in the comics to try to force their hand to make Bucky and Cap a couple. And that to me is where it goes to a whole different place. And that's where I think social media brings a whole other level to this fan ownership stuff where it gets, as we've talked about before, the toxic nature of fandoms. Right. And, and this is, this is the the dynamic that we're dealing with. The dynamic is, you know, we were just talking earlier. It's, it's kind of cool to be analytical about it. Be like, you know what? I think Bucky, and Captain America are totally in love with each other. You remember that part in this movie? Remember that part in this movie? Remember when they did this and they looked at each yeah, other that yeah, way? Yeah. They're totally into it. And then there's like, they have to be into each other. It, you have to make them be a couple in order, and you have to make, you have to realize this and it has to come into fruition or it's not legitimate. Right. Like a good, I, I think a good uh, example for me in my line of work, and it's going to get really weird and it may offend a few people, but is um, David and Jonathan in the Bible. Oh. Um, it's become a very it's 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 become an increasingly common interpretation of that story that David and Jonathan were a couple, um, and if you read their story, I mean, it gets you know there's some suggestive stuff in there, and I know people say, oh well, you know, near ancient Near Eastern male friendships were a lot more uh, emotional yeah, than modern friendships. This isn't a Frodo Samwise thing, like right. This is, but at the same, but you look at the language and it's, you know, when, when Jonathan dies and David says, your love for me was more than that of women. I mean, that sends a kind of interesting (laughs) message and, but it's, and it's an interpretation of a story that I think the text somewhat justifies whether or not it's a sexual relationship. They are, it is presented as two men who are in love with each other. That is undeniable from the text, whether it's sexual or not, it's a whole other story. But, but that interpretation is important for all of for for those for the same sex Christians who read the Bible and same sex Jews who read the Bible to see that there's people like them in the story somewhere, um, but again, at no point does the Bible lay out David and Jonathan got married, you know, like David and Jonathan lived happily ever after as a couple. 
it's it's a matter of like you said, it's 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 reading the text and seeing indicators of things and making the case from reading the text. Just like you watch, you know, you you watch, um, you know, you watch you watch um, 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 Civil War, and the fact that you know you, you see a look between Bucky and Cap, or the fact you know all that kind of stuff, it, yeah. it it can lead to like a possibility. It's a wink. It's a whatever. Like you said, it's fun. It's speculative, but then when it turns into. My God, it has to be this way. If they don't it, fulfill this, the, the writers are yeah. doing something wrong. Yeah. They're betraying like, me. They're not giving me what I deserve as a fan. Right. And that leads into the other concept that's weird to me, which is headcanon. What do you mean by headcanon? What, what's, what's Have you not heard that phrase? I've heard it. I've heard it. But let's, let's explain it to our audience, headcanon. Okay. I, I wasn't sure if you had never heard that. I was gonna, kind of shocked if you hadn't. Headcanon, correct me if I'm wrong. My understanding of headcanon is, you know, C-A-N-O-N, which refers to... Um, the sort of authoritative interpretation of a particular text or event um, that like headcanon is looking at something that happens in a story and saying, in my head, this is how it happened. This is my headcanon. Like this is how I choose to believe. And it's not just filling in gaps. It's just, it's just like, are we kind of ignoring what's happened in the text or are we giving like meaning to it? Uh, yeah, I, I, that's a piece I actually don't know that much about. But as I mean, as when I see that when I see the term used, I think like like for example, some people would say my head canon is that Bucky and Cap are a couple that are that or you get at least very least say that that Cap loves Bucky in a way that's more than a friend. Like I mean, he, or, he is love yeah. with Bucky. Or or that my head canon is that the diamonds from Reservoir Dogs are in the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's a good example. Yeah. There's a good example. Something kind of yeah. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Perfect. Um, and that's okay. That's cool. You choose to believe that and you can support it from the movie or the text or whatever. That's cool, I guess, whatever. But yeah, but getting back to this thing where it's like my head canon is the only right canon. And if you're and if you don't make my head canon concrete on the page, I'm going to be angry. Kind of like um, Elsa being a lesbian in Frozen. Yeah, which is really messed up because they're sisters. Well, I don't think I don't think they were shipping, were they, Elsa and, and Anna? I think it was just that Elsa is a lesbian, not that. Oh no, no, I I think people ship Elsa and Anna. Really? That's kind of weird. And Disney, <laughs> I, 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 will, I, will, I thought I will it was point just out, making her a Disney lesbian. does Disney does not help the matter, does not help themselves with this either, <laughs> because in the parades and stuff, Elsa and Anna are always together in the same way that like Cinderella is with her prince and Snow White is with her prince. And they're often holding hands on floats and stuff. But like the end of the frozen ride, they're together holding hands. Like I'm saying in front of their own, in front of a house, like a, like a cottage together. Disney's not helping themselves with this. <laughs> but they're at sisters all. though. Like they're, they're, they're but they siblings. are sisters, but like, and the movie's you know, not really, if you have some intertextuality here, uh, or maybe context is actually the more preferred term but there's no real like there's no like love interest in that movie right like so it's about their relationship so it's no anna um um anna and and christoph they oh, have right. a it's been a while my kids love this movie like these kids my kids love this movie. i've seen it like six times today the the um but no the but the i mean you just know the fan fiction's out there because elsa has white hair she's not actually oh my really... gosh dude of course it's out there rule 34 bro like it's Oh, those not, the, the less we say about that, the better. Uh, I would say Google it, but maybe don't. No, don't. Well, that's that's the interesting thing about Elsa and fan ownership is that from from what from what I the conversations that I've seen is that Elsa is a lesbian and that a lot of the 
a lot of and 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 it's it's not really like um i mean the arguments are interesting uh because people kind of take frozen as sort of allegory about a woman coming to terms with her sexuality which is a valid interpretation of the movie, by the way. Right, right. Like, a valid interpretation. But does that mean they have to make to her a lesbian? It's an allegory in, of it. Does that mean they have to make her a lesbian in Frozen 2? Yeah. And I. And then that's that's the difference. Right. And if she's not, oh my gosh, can you imagine how mad people are going to be? <laughs> yeah. And then if they do, how mad people are going to be? Oh, it, the, yeah, yeah. Disney's screwed either way. <laughs> the next one. They should just not make another Frozen. <laughs> just don't. Honestly, they should not. <laughs> And like I, I know this gets into a whole bunch of things like representation and all this kind of stuff, and I get that. Right. And that there's there is to me what the whole just use Frozen to continue that conversation. What that whole conversation um, yields to me is that there is a very strong and increasingly vocal desire for Disney to have some form of of, of openly gay major characters. Right in their stable of princesses and princes um, is the solution to take Elsa and make her a lesbian or is the solution for them to write characters that are, and I know that that becomes like a pretty typical, like, like we'll just create your own characters kind of nonsense. And I know that's a whole loaded conversation, Well, but like, but I guess, I guess part of it for me too is, I don't care either way, really, in terms of Elsa, because Elsa doesn't is not depicted as having really a love interest, so they could do whatever they want with her. Mm. Um, um, if they if they make her and Anna a couple, that's gonna be pretty messed up in my mind. <laughs> I but, do. but I don't know. But, Game of Thrones has been going in that territory, so I don't oh, know. <laughs> but the but the um, but I guess I guess if you have to go so far as to take this character and make her that, that to me it's somewhat lessens the interpretive richness of seeing it in allegorical terms. It's true. And I think that, I think the big takeaway of frozen, um, is that I think recognizing it from an, from an analytical point of view and, and just kind of accepting the, as an allegory, as like a really great, really interesting critical analysis of the text. Um, I think that's just as, that's just as good as having something that's represented because that means that, I mean, if, if the intention was there, the intention was clear, then that means that the people who are behind frozen understand and accept that the world is diverse, right? That it doesn't take place in just a white straight world. And I, right. I think that's what, I think that's a real diversity is just recognizing that it doesn't always yeah. mean you have to pigeonhole a bunch of different diverse characters, even though that's okay too, I think. I think I think yeah. if, a, if an author really feels like I really want to have a black character, an Asian character, a gay character, that, fine. As long, hey man, make it good though. <laughs> like it's got to be yeah. good, <laughs> right? Um, well, yeah. I mean, and 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 the thing is, is I, I, I one level for me when going back to Frozen because I've watched it so many times. I mean, I've I've come away with some I, some ideas of it in terms of its Christian imagery. I mean, for crying out loud, one of the characters name is Kristoff, um, which is of Christ. I mean, he is, you know, it's Christopher Christ bearer and Anna, um, who is, um, is the name of, of, of the Virgin Mary's mother, St. Anne. Um, and Anna is dressed in a costume very similar to iconography of, really? of St. Anne. Yeah. I, I can go on a whole thing. I, 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 I might one day, but I, um, but I, what, what it gets to me is this point is that, when you 
when you concretize it, when you make it concrete that this is the way it's meant to be interpreted, I think you'll lose something. It's, so it's, kind of the way, it's kind of the way that I feel about when people run around and say Jesus was gay or even Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. I don't like that because now suddenly Jesus is much is, is now he's exclusive in a certain way. Mm-hmm. You know, so if I if I'm if I'm you know, if I'm queer and I look at Jesus and I find out, oh, he was just, he was a straight dude married to a woman like I'm I'm now somewhat excluded from what the doctrine of the incarnation is all about. Right. But if we say that Jesus is like asexual or something and that makes him queer and suddenly he, you know, but like, as long as we don't know that stuff, he sort of becomes a bit of a void in which we can project our inhumanity, right. you know, see our inhumanity in him and, and all of that. And I, so, so I, I mean, on one hand, I guess I'm saying that Elsa and Jesus is the same person, but the, <laughs> um, but the, um, but no, the, uh, which is not true because, um, she's, she sends the, she's Dr. Manhattan. Um, <laughs> That's, but, yeah, that, that, that is funny. Yeah. Yeah. She's Dr. Um, Dr. Manhattan. Manhattan. Um, but it's that sense though that as soon as you as soon as you as soon as you make her a certain thing her story then becomes that particular thing right. because I don't know like I, I, I watch it and I imagine you know my kids I don't know what my kids are you know I don't know what their sexuality is going to turn up and turn out to be you know my both of my sons love that movie both of my son if one of my sons turns out to be gay is he going to look at the story of, of Frozen and say, like, that helped give language to me understanding who I am and, and, and coming out? If it suddenly becomes a story about a lesbian girl, does that – does he does that – does he lose that? Is, I guess that's the question. And maybe you don't, and, and that's fine. And maybe, you know, and maybe I'm just – I'm being overly – you know, I'm being I'm – maybe I'm, I'm missing something. But I, I do worry that well, – part of my chair just, like, broke. Um <laughs> I uh, but I but I do worry that within this fan ownership stuff, that good intentions get in the way of of what art is supposed to be. Right. And as I said to you in conversations leading up to this podcast, I'm a, I'm a bit concerned that this mindset is too informed by capitalist consumerism. And so basically yeah, yeah. stories are subject to what the marketplace wants them to be. And that is deeply concerning to me. Yeah. And it's, it's audience and customer are two different things. Right. And, and cinema has sort of conflated them. Right. Uh, not just cinema. Music has done the same thing. Comics, apparently fiction. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I think you're right. And it, 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 it's kind of, it is a capitalistic thing. And, you know, Alan Moore has talked about this and he said, like, it's the difference between an artist and a creator. Like, you can't tell me what to do because then you stop being the audience and you start being the creator and you're no creator. <laughs> you know, I'm the creator. I'm the artist. Right. And it's it's really like, I guess sometimes it can be kind of fun like we said in Star Trek The Next Generation, when they let a fan write an episode. Um, but I don't know. Like, what, what's what's the difference? What's the difference between Star fans Star Trek Next Generation having an open door policy, and and you know, fans wanting a certain character to have a certain orientation, or uh, you know, Captain America shouldn't be Hydra. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, so many ridiculous things. I, 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 I think the difference in that, I guess, is collaboration versus wish fulfillment. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're writing an episode for an established television show, you're working within the parameters of the producers and you're getting input from a group of people who are saying, you know, you write your script and they're going to come in and they're going to say, well, no, so-and-so wouldn't do this, wouldn't do that. Like, okay, good example is, is Kirk, okay? Yeah. Um, when Shatner played Kirk... Um, particularly when he played Kirk in, I think it was Star Trek Generations. Not a great movie, but it was his swan song as Kirk. He died on a bridge. Uh, he did. Um, <laughs> that's true. Uh, 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 but not alone, like he said he was in Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. But um, Lord. but uh, hearing stories about Kirk, uh, of Shatner coming back to these characters and him having input or I think I think um, Nimoy did the same thing when he played um, Spock Prime in 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 2009 Star Trek, that um, the dialogue had been written, but when he looked at it, he was like, "Well, Spock wouldn't say it this way. Spock would say it this way. Spock would do that." You know, so you're you're part of the collaborative collaborative process, and so yeah, someone is writing the character, but you know, Nimoy, Shatner, they had a role to play in also creating these characters and bringing them to life, and. You know, they knew things that people might not have known, you know, through you know decades of, of, of portraying it. Yeah. So when you have a fan who's writing something like that, you know, it's it's naturally going to subject itself to some form of parameters. Right. You know, you're not going to get your wish fulfillment. You might. I mean, you might, but you're probably not. Mm-hmm. Um, what I think the problem is, is we've got a bunch of wish fulfillment folks running around. And I get it, sort of. Yeah. You, you, you know, you really want the certain thing to happen. I mean... You know, as somebody who wanted to see a, a, a very well-made, big-budget, Hollywood-produced um, Godzilla film for 20-some-odd years when it finally came, I get it. Like, I get it. After after 1998's terrible film, I get, I get it as a fan, what you want to see. But you've got to – at some point, you have to let creators tell the story they want to tell. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, 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 I tell you what. Let me let me let me use an example since I just brought up Godzilla because for those who don't know, are you going to talk about your, your Godzilla shipping? <laughs> <Shut> um, <laughs> Goth Gothra. Jeez, oh, because <laughs> Mothra's the only female character in 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 uh, Godzilla. Anyway, normative um, of me. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I wonder if Ghidra. What deal with Ghidra is? Is like each of those heads a different gender? Anyway, um, <laughs> hmm. so so um. No, so Godzilla Godzilla's my fandom. Like I love Godzilla. Like yeah. it's it's about the only thing that edges out my avatar love. And <laughs> it's oh Lord. Um but um but I love I love Godzilla. I love Godzilla so much. Um I have a preference for what we call the Heisei series of Godzilla films, which are the films produced in the nineties. I think those are the best those are the best Godzilla films. And I like that Garrett Edwards, when he made his Godzilla movie, drew from that well a little bit more. Um, I'm not a huge fan of the sixties films. I think they're a little too silly, but Hey, you know, whatever. Um, but that being said, Shin Godzilla came out a couple years ago, um, which is a radical departure for Godzilla because it was the first Godzilla movie, Japanese made Godzilla movie that completely rewrote the book that started from scratch. Cause all the other Godzilla movies sort of treated the original 1954 film as an event and everything was sort of a sequel to that. Um, through multiple series or whatever. It's a very complicated thing. But Shin Godzilla um, started completely from scratch. And they made some radical decisions with Godzilla that I think if I were like 15, I would have really hated. But when I saw the movie in theaters, I was on board with. 
you know, because the idea in the movie is that so Godzilla has been pretty established as a very particular kind of character. He's a walking nuclear reactor. He's the embodiment of nuclear war. Um, Shin Godzilla takes a different direction with the character and makes him sort of more like an embodiment of industrial pollution and waste and uh, also a foil to inept government bureaucracy. It's a very interesting movie. But Godzilla is depicted in that as a char- as a monster with an unbelievable comp- a complex genome that allows him to adapt to any circumstances. So throughout the movie, Godzilla evolves to whatever his circumstances are. So he changes throughout the movie. And it's a pretty radical departure um, for the character because um, he not only shoots his heat ray out of his mouth, but he shoots it out of his spine. He shoots it out of his tail. Like he adapts throughout the story, uh, throughout the movie to do different things. Some fans fans hate that movie because it's such, such a far departure. But like, as a again, as a pretty diehard fan of this franchise, I'm at a place now where I can say, I really, I think Shin Godzilla is like the best Godzilla movie ever made. Really, uh, I really like what they did with it. Mm. Um, and I also know that if I want the if I want the hulking nuclear reactor Godzilla that fights giant robots, I can watch that movie. It's out there. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm okay with people telling, using my, using characters that are very beloved and precious to me to tell another story because the other stories have been told they're out there and I can revisit those. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't need another Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla. It's the one movie they've remade more than any other. <laughs> um, okay. I don't need that. I don't need Godzilla fighting technology again. Sure. That's every Godzilla movie. So so I'm a, I'm the kind of fan that I'm 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 willing to let somebody tell the story they want to tell, and if I don't like it, I don't have to I don't have to like it. I can go watch what I do like. I mean, that's kind of where you're at now as Godzilla fans, anyway. There's so many of them, right? At this point, it's like oh, there's really isn't definitive. You just kind of pick and choose what you want to do, kind of like Batman. Yeah, yeah. And so like if I don't Dracula, well, to, and well, and to and to get back to Star Wars, if I don't like the direction that that Disney is taking with Star Wars now, there is 40 years <laughs> of extended universe material out there that I can get my hands on. Yeah. Unless they're going to make Star Wars till we're all gone dead anyway. So like, right. They're, they're eventually going to make one you really like. <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> but I just, I, I, but, but the idea that as a fan, I need to demand that they make the thing that I want to make is kind of interesting. And let's be honest, JP. Go, to get back to Star Wars, isn't that kind of what we got with The Force Awakens? And a lot of Star Wars fans don't like that movie? Oh, no, no, no. I think Star Wars fans love that movie. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's a certain contingent amongst, like, film Twitter <laughs> that doesn't like it. Um, I have my criticisms. But for the most part, I think they – you're right. They did do a lot of things that fans wanted. Um, right. They wanted to be shot in film. They wanted to be more like the original trilogy, you know, with its uh, set design and stuff, with its, uh, <sighs> with uh, the, like the texture of it, you know, something yeah. real and practical, not just a bunch of green screen and CGI, even though there is tons of that. It's, it's still pretty practical for the most part. Right. Um, it got back to being humorous. It got back to being more like a World War II Western and, you know, less of like a fantasy wuxia which is i think what georgia was trying to do but yeah you're right yeah 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 and and there is a contingent that does like it and i think it mostly belongs to like film twitter and and then people who okay. read birth movies death and 
And maybe that's the thing is like that's the only that's the only perspective I tend to see because that 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 group hates like everything Star but, Wars. No, but you're comes out. Yeah, but 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 you're but you're right though, Chuck. And I think I think it's Steve Jobs. Okay, good person to talk about. And how he was so adamant about not making those Apple computers open source. And how Wozniak was like, no, they have to give us open source. They're not going to buy it unless it's open source. Our one Mac that we made was open source and it was very popular. They all have to be open source. And he's like, I don't care what they want. What Steve <laughs> the consumer doesn't know what they want. Yeah. Yeah. The consumer doesn't know what they want. I think there's some truth to that. Yeah. I mean, Steve Jobs straight, straight up said they don't know what we want until we give it to them. Yeah. What an arrogant guy, but he's right. <laughs> I mean, there's probably a less toxic way to approach it. Uh, <laughs> um, but, and I don't know, maybe that's what Kathleen Kennedy is doing. Um, yeah, I, I just, Ma- I, Mama I think Bear of, knows what she's doing, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I just think of, I mean, Star Wars, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. No one expected that movie to do well in 1977. Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, George Lucas showed it to so many people his colleagues and they're like what is this crap right the only person that liked it was steven spielberg right and it's star wars i know you know so it's one of those things where if we only get the thing that we think we want we miss out on something radical and new it's very true um and and that to me is why as fans, we, you got to tone it down a little bit. Yeah, and, and some people, some people fall fall prey to it. Uh, Ridley Scott has been saying over the summer that the whole reason why he brought back the Xenomorph in the new Alien movie was because the fans wanted it. But now, right. I feel like everybody hated that movie. <laughs> I liked it. Yeah, by I, the way. I, 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 thought I didn't. Good. I haven't seen it yet. I thought it was um, good, that's just me. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, and that's it's, it's funny to, to me because I'm a I'm a huge Alien fan as well, and. And as much as I hated Prometheus, I've kind of taken a turn on that movie. I actually kind and of actually, have too. Like, I feel bad because I, I definitely, I think I fell into the camp of like, oh, not enough like the other movies. But he was trying to do something different. He was trying just to be an artist, which is what Ridley right. Scott does. And like, and, he's like the other artist who could be that kind of artist in that kind of capacity. He's earned it. Well, and how cool, how cool is it to make a movie set in the same universe as another beloved franchise, but never really like reference that other franchise because i mean because that let's take a moment let's appreciate the fact that alien is a much better movie when the xenomorph is just this thing they found oh yeah it's a much more effective movie and if you make 20 prometheus movies you make a bunch of movies set, stemming off from that from within that universe the Wayland utani corporation and all the stuff they're doing in space um you know even if you wanted to bring in like all of James Cameron's movies somehow like make it all working together into one big like cinematic universe. You leave it to where the, the xenomorph was just this thing that they happened upon. It becomes an infinitely more scary movie, right. a more effective monster. Um, and I mean, it gets back into this thing that we could talk about in Hollywood or in, with Halloween movies is like when we show the origin of killers mm-hmm. and how that just we don't we don't need that. Right. We don't need their motivation. No, it, it makes no. them less of what they are when you know their motivation. Absolutely. And you know, um, it, it, and, and you're right, Chuck. It, it really does go back to our society and capitalism stuff. That's 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 perpetuating all of this. Just let the artist be an artist. Yeah. Like, just put your life in their hands. Like, you know, I, I watch a lot of Gordon Ramsay. <laughs> I don't think it's something we've we've touched upon on the show yet, have we? Yeah, you're like, do you have like you have like an avatar level obsession with <laughs> with Gordon Ramsay? Never talked about him on the show though. <laughs> I would wear a Gordon Ramsay hoodie if I could. 
I should uh, I should see if Kana can make you one. <laughs> that, with like his hair, um, he has wild <laughs> hair. Uh, where was it going? Uh, Gordon Ramsay, you know, when he goes to these restaurants and he's like reviving them and stuff and helping out them, he asks the chef and he asks the owner, "Who is the most important person here?" And they all like, "Oh, uh, the chef is, or the owner is, or the the, the waitresses are." And he's like, no, bloody no, you donkeys. It's the customers. They're the most important people. That's that's a restaurant. I would argue that the audience is not the most important person when it comes to art. In fact, I don't think the people at all are important. I think what's important is the art and what it says and how it affects people. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, think about the fact that because with the way that this has become capitalized, you know, it's all about sort of the you know the guaranteed return on investment, and so we think we want to give people what they want, right? I mean, right. good good example right now is the box office of Blade Runner and how it's not doing well at all, even though it's like a critical darling. Exactly, yeah. I mean, that's um, what I wanted to bring up today as well, um, because we were talking about because we, we were talking about like the, the cracked article and how yeah. criticism was like affecting these movies and stuff, but that's not like the negative criticism towards Transformers isn't keeping them from making movies anytime soon. Right. And like the criticism isn't helping Blade Runner right now. <laughs> right. Um, but it's um, but you think because of this whole sort of like guaranteed return of investment board meeting basis on, on, on making art. Yeah. Which I mean, obviously, all art, all artists have to sell out to some degree. Like that just has to happen. Like that's been the case since art was invented because, yeah. um, you, you know, you have to make a living and, and, and whatnot. But it's a fine line you have to walk. But. There's so much capitalism doesn't give doesn't give way to risk. And I worry that we're never going to get something like The Matrix again. Yeah, that's sad. A movie that or Star should Wars. not. Right. I mean, these are these are movies that were super risky. Mm-hmm. And we look back at them. We're like, they're awesome. And now we're just sort of like, I want more of that. Yeah. You know, but do you really want more of that? Or do you want more original storytelling that captures your imagination that way? Um, you know, I mean, I, I, again, I mean, we, 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 we probably need to wrap up here, but I mean, you know, we could go, we could use the case study of Avatar because it's a movie I love so much that, you know, it was basically like, I mean, it made all of the money Mm -hmm. and it was positioned to be huge and it was huge and it was meant to be a cultural force, but then it wasn't. And arguably it's only become a a cultural force because of the Disney ride now. Mm I wonder you know? though, and part of me wonders, and this is probably this is a totally different conversation, but I, because we could probably have an Avatar episode and talk about this, but I, I wonder if part of it is because um, Hollywood did not learn the lessons we were all hoping they would learn. Instead of running with the things that we learned from Avatar, they ran with just the 3D aspect, the immersive aspect. And so because of that, because they didn't run with like originality or more movies about jungles, I guess I don't know. It just kind of took. It took the public consciousness. It took Avatar out of the public consciousness. Maybe because I, I think that I mean Cameron himself said that his primary focus in making that movie was to really create an an immersive cinematic experience, yeah. and that he intentionally picked a very a fairly generic story hmm. um, because he wanted he, he felt that that a generic story would get people in the theater to have this experience and he thought you know i mean what's what what i mean what 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 is there's there's nothing offensive about the plot of avatar no not at all you know it it, it hits all you could could talk about like some of the the overused tropes of like the noble savage and stuff where people kind of find that problematic 
Right, right, right. But like I'm saying, like for the most part, though, like nobody is going to have a problem with a movie about indigenous peoples protecting their natural habitat from big corporations. Right. I mean, that that especially in America, that that fits. Um, I mean, to the point that someone said that um, that you knew that James Cameron figured some kind of has worked some kind of magic when you get people in Kentucky to cheer a movie where the Americans are the bad guys <laughs> and lose. Um, but, um, but like, you know, so he, so, so it's an inoffensive movie that's meant to just sort of tell a generic story that pretty much anybody can walk away with, but it was really kind of getting somewhat of an older cinematic element where it's also a good time at the movies. Right. Yeah. It's not, you know, trying to create some major textual piece to shape culture. It's also, recognizing that going to the movies can be a good time, Um, which is, you know, exploitation cinema, right? I mean, that's the whole point of that. Um, Yeah, yeah, for the most part. I mean, (laughs) exploitation is a bit more cynical. A lot of people are kind of fooled into seeing crappy movies but right but but anyway but you know but and again where we 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 could go we could keep going on all this kind of stuff um but yeah i worry that i don't know i just i think to some degree from my conclusion yeah there is some degree of ownership from the fans we own the things that we like Mm -hmm. um but we also need to be willing to let go too. Um, there's, you know, you, you, you own it, but you don't hold it so tight. Right. You, you hold it with a, with a loose grip. Um, because you own it because you like it, but we also need to be willing to let the people who make the stuff that we are fans of, if they're going to continue making new stories in that, in our fandom to trust them, to make the stories right. and to go along on the journey, you know, I, I it, it, it's like that, the, the negative reaction to Captain America as a Hydra agent. Um, like I know I'm starting a whole new topic right. um, because that was a huge, that was obviously a huge thing, but I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think like, okay, if I'm invested in Captain America as a character, like I'm, I'm, I would think that I'm emotionally, I'm on the journey. Like, how does this work? How does this happen? And I'm feeling it. I'm, and I, and I want to see what the next chapter is going to unveil. And I want to see how the story is going to wrap up because I mean, come on, if you've ever read a comic book, you know, the status quo is going to be restored in the end. That's how it all works. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's coming along with it because here's a character I love and all these other characters that I love and how they're affected by this event. And, you know, and here's a point in time where I get to enjoy the story until the status quo is restored. But people just did not go to that. It was like, they wanted, they wanted the status quo every week. Mm-hmm. They didn't want the status quo shake shook up at all. And that's a weird thing to me. And I think that's kind of new. And I think it's bad for art. <clears throat> you know, it's really funny about this conversation, uh, Chuck. We kind of get into some, not not really heavy, but we, we do kind of get passionate and have fun talking and talking about some serious issues and things like that. You're doing all of this, and as you're kind of getting into it and talking, being expressive, your, your Navi ears are flapping. Oh, I know. It's <laughs> it's really. Fun. It's like it's, it's, really it's like they're perking up to hear like all the stuff around me in in, in the world of Pandora. See, you could you could tell the Navi is upset about fan ownership by the way he his ears go backwards. <laughs> <laughs> I'm upset. <laughs> Leave us alone. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's probably a good thing that like we didn't have like this. We didn't like I wasn't wearing this while we were talking about like the Las Vegas shooting or something. <laughs> 
anyway. it's kind of like it's kind of like how Mel Gibson, like every time he makes a movie, he has one day where he shoots while wearing a clown nose. <laughs> and he, he did that even on The Passion of the Christ. That's really funny. <laughs> wow. Well, uh, I believe that's all the time we have for today, folks. Um, unfortunately, Matt was not able to join us. Uh, he had uh, police business to tend to. Uh, Going to put some suckers in jail. I don't know. That wasn't. Or, I was trying to do like an East Clintus with thing. That's not. I'm, I'm not tough. I'm not. I am not. Tough. <laughs> There's a reason why you and I are not police officers. Oh yeah, totally. But you know, neither is Matt. I mean, he is a police officer. I could take him. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. Sure, you do that. <laughs> He's gonna mace me in the face. Uh, <laughs> Chuck, thank you so much for your wonderful, wonderful insight and for being here and for bringing your your, your exceptionally Navi hoodie. Oh, hold on, hold on. Before, but you have to you have to appreciate something. Hold on. Okay. The lights have gone out, and <laughs> can you see it glowing? I I see a little bit of it glowing. It's not. Yeah, I see the poke. I see the dots. Glowing. Yeah, the dots glow. That's what they do. Uh, okay. That's... Which is, it's kind of awesome for the, uh, it's kind of awesome for the, because uh, at night in Pandora at the park, it's all black lit and like oh, okay, violet yeah. essence. So you wear this and it. Oh uh, yeah. Interesting. So you have to spend like $70 to go to the park and then another $70 for the, the hoodie. And then you get the effect <laughs> of being on a Navi on Pandora. Look, man, I was running a fever. I was cold <laughs> and they, they, I wanted a hoodie and I happened to be in Pandora and I thought, you know what? This is funny. This, I will get a lot of traction out of this. So I bought it and it's super warm. Actually, it's got like a great lining. It's a great hoodie. It's just completely ridiculous. Uh, you know what? Oh, I'm, I'm glad you got the hoodie, Chuck, cause I'm glad it, it, it's, it has certainly made you happy. Yes. And, uh, that's, that's, that's what, that's what fandom should be about. Just doing things that make you happy. Well, I bought it with while well, I was with Charlie. He was with me, and um, Charlie kept wanting to buy like a na- like a Navi dagger, and I said no. He was going to use that on his brother, and that, that was not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. Yeah, uh-huh. he'll probably use something else now. But yeah, I mean, he, yeah, he's he's he, he's very creative. He's got all kinds of all kinds of blunt blunt um, implements of of, of of injury exactly yeah. at his disposal. Uh, right, great. Uh, audience, thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to tune in next week as we talk about chemtrails and why you should never leave the house again. <laughs> We've, you've done that one before. Have we? Oh, shoot. Yeah, you've done the, you've done the chemtrails one. Um, how's about this? How's about this? Uh, next week, uh, join us as we talk about... Furniture made of fungus. <laughs> there are lampshades. Um, there are oh, bar stools, and now somebody is trying to grow a house out of out of a fungus. They're growing furniture. Growing furniture. It's a fungal infused wood. Yep. And they're gonna turn on you and turn into Audrey too from Little Shop of Horrors, and or it's gonna be like The Last of Us. Yeah, that's that's it. Thank you for joining us. Tune in next week. Good journey. Good journey.